planned to preach through the entire chapter 11 this morning till I sat down and started studying and putting notes together and said, okay, this is going to be a two-parter. <laughs> From theology to doxology. Uh, I, I heard a, a, a pastor one time was talking about preaching through the book of Romans. And one of his colleagues said, well, you know, what did you do when you got to chapter 11? And he said, I did the only thing I could do. I skipped it. <laughs> he said, it's just too hard. He said, I, I don't understand what Paul's saying there. He said, literally, I skipped it. Well, I can't do that. It's right here in the Word of God, so we have to preach it. And what Romans 11 is about, this chapter is speaking about the outworking of God's saving purpose in redemptive history. With particular emphasis on the future of the nation Israel. Um, there are four reasons that this passage is significant for us. Uh, it's, a, it's relevant for our, our evangelism. You cannot read Romans 9 through 11 and not see Paul's heart for the lost. Not just the lost of Israel, of his own kinsmen that he's talking about, but lost for everyone. And, and Paul even goes so far as we saw back in chapter 9. He said, you know what? He said, I would even give up my salvation if it meant they would be saved. Now, that was impossible for him to do. But, but we see what Paul meant there. So uh, this, this is relevant for our evangelism. It's relevant for our unity. There must be unity in the church. Okay? Um, here, Paul specifically is talking about unity between Jew and Gentile. But unity is important for us as a church. Because it says that we all love and serve the same God. And we all love the Word of God and the truth of the Word of God. And let me just emphasize here, we can, as much as unity is important in the church, we can never sacrifice truth for the sake of unity. Okay? And there are many today that do that, and, and that's why I have to bring that up. Uh, but it's also relevant for our hope. God is in control of human history. Let that sink in for a minute. <clears throat> there is not one shot fired in any war in the history of the world that God did not ordain. There is not one person born on this planet that God did not ordain. There is not one nation that rises or falls that God does not ordain. There is not one person. <laughs> there is not one person in a position of authority of any nation without the ordination of God. I know, but I'm not going to go there. <laughs> But it's relevant for our hope. This should encourage us to know that, listen, for the believer, 
One of the things that Paul points out here is nothing happens to us by accident. Nothing happens by chance. There's no such thing as luck. It's all by the providence of Almighty God. And so if I wake up tomorrow and, and our nation has been taken over by somebody else, I'll be devastated. But you know what? I'll know God allowed it to happen. And I can trust that if God allowed that to happen, there must be a reason. I can wake up tomorrow feeling bad and go to the doctor. He may tell me, you've got this incurable disease. And I will be devastated. And I would think, but you know, God, you are in control. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had people talk about a, a birth. And they would say, well, you know, the parent would say, well, that was an accident. There's no such thing as an accidental birth. Did you know there's no such thing as an accidental death? Psalm 139, my favorite psalm. We even read this in that, in that it was part of the lyrics of the song. Which, God has ordained our days. It is appointed unto men once to die. We all have that appointment. And the point that I'm getting here is God's in control of everything. There's nothing left for me to have to take care of. And I'm glad of that. I don't know whether you are, but you should be, that there's nothing I have to take care of. So it's relevant for our whole build. It's also relevant for our worship. Good theology. Paul, uh, uh, Dr. Stephen Lawson, I was watching him the other day on the attributes of God. And this is one of the things he said. He said, good theology leads to high worship. Bad theology leads to world worship. And it's relevant for us in worship because <clears throat> good theology also leads to a heartfelt doxology. Uh, a heartfelt worship. As we're, if, if you go down, you know what, go back, go all the way down to the end of chapter 11. Look at verse 33. Paul says, oh, the depth of. Of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that he might be repaid to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, next week, we're going to get to that verse, and I'll get a little more in-depth with it. But, but that's, we, we see how Paul ends chapters 9, 10, and 11 with this worship of God and who he is. Uh, you know, chapter 10 ends with God holding out his hands to the nation of Israel. Look at chapter 10 and verse 21. Paul says, but as for Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Now Paul addresses the future destiny of the nation of of Israel. We see that God has a people chosen by his grace. Look at verse 1. I say then, has God rejected his people? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. 
They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have left for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In this way, then, at this present time, a remnant, according to God's gracious choice, has also come to be. But if it is by grace, it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But the chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened, just as it was written. God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes to see not to eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. So Paul begins with a question. He says, so concerning the nation Israel, concerning the Jewish people, he says, is it over? Is God done with them? Uh, he says, has God rejected his people? And he, he emphatically says, may it never be. Some translations, I like better says, it reads, absolutely not. Has God not rejected his people? God will never totally reject the nation of Israel. And, and Paul gives three proofs to his answer. Look at verse 16. He says, and if the First piece of dough is whole. I'm sorry, verse 6. I didn't know why I said 16. Verse 6. He says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Now, you go back into chapter 10, and you remember what Paul was saying there. Or, I'm sorry, chapter 9. Paul says, uh, what that shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness laid hold of it, uh, of righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel... Pursuing a law of righteousness did not obtain that law. Why? Because they did not obtain it or pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They were seeking to obtain their salvation by being obedient to the law, which, by the way, they couldn't do. Neither can we. And Paul here points out, he says, uh, this person, he, Paul says, I'm an Israelite. He said, uh, I am one who embraces uh, that there in verse one. He says, I too am an Israelite, a seed of Abraham of the, of the tribe of Benjamin. So when the Jews had said, look, we have rejected him. So therefore the word of God has failed. And Paul says, absolutely not. He said, I'm proof. That it has not failed. Because I too am an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says that he was one who had embraced Christ as a Messiah. And there in verse 2 we see a theological truth. That God has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. Foreknowing involves God's choosing. It's a relationship of love. See, it applies to us. It applies to everyone who's saved. Not just the nation of Israel, but all of us. God cannot unknow people that he's already foreknown. He cannot unknow them. So we, we see that they are his. Paul, Paul's point here is to point out, listen, God, way back yonder, he chose Abram. 
to be a nation. And God has not rejected that. And I want to tell you something. And, and, and I'm going to try not to get too far off of what I'm at here. Okay, I'm not trying to chase a rabbit here. I hope not. But I want, to, I want you to understand something here. God chose the nation of Israel. He chose Abram and made them a special people. Made them a chosen nation. That has not changed. That has not changed. But we have to understand here. That the Bible does not teach that the church becomes Israel. The, the Bible does not teach what's known as replacement theology. God has a people called Israel. God has a people called the church. They are two distinct entities. Now they will be one. Paul's going to tell us that here probably next week. But we need to understand this. That, that God has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. Uh, and, and Paul gives a scriptural example there in, in the last part of verse 2. He says, Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left. And they're seeking my life. Paul gives the example of Elijah. You remember the story of Elijah, he's... God says, I want you to go to my people Israel. They're, they're worshiping Baal. And Elijah just stands and he, gives, he, he calls all the people together and he says, look, here's the deal. Do you believe in Yahweh? Do you believe in Jehovah God? Then worship him. Do you believe in Baal? Do you follow Baal? Then worship him. In other words, and, and God today still says the same thing. Get on one side or the other. You know, uh, I, I think it was Dr. J. Vernon McGee one time, he said, you know, he said, God owns both sides of the fence. The devil owns the fence. You can't ride the fence. And, and Elijah stands there, and so he calls all the people. He says, okay, here's what we'll do. He says, we'll have a contest. And, and he called all the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, up on the Mount Carmel. He says, here's what we're going to do. He said, you build your altar. You call on your God and see what he does. I'll build an altar and we'll call on my God and see what he does. Okay? So it's really kind of a comical situation here because the prophets of Baal, they build their altar and then they're cutting themselves and dancing around. I mean, it goes on for hours and hours. And Elijah's over here. You know what? Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's on vacation. I mean, he's mocking them. And, and this goes on for some time. And finally, Elijah says, okay, you know what, guys? That's enough. It's my turn. So Elijah builds an altar, and he has them dig a moat around it. Now, remember this. This is important. It has not rained for three years. And Elijah drenches his, all his uh, sacrifice in water, fills the moat up with water. I can imagine all these people watching all this water just being poured out on the ground. And Elijah basically says, God, show them who you are. And immediately fire came down from heaven and completely devoured and licked up every drop of water. Then Elijah goes down and he kills all 450 of those prophets. Plus more. Well, those were Jezebel's prophets. And Jezebel says, okay, Elijah, your life is mine. And when I find you, you're dead. So he takes off running. That's another sermon. <laughs> he's up there. He's hiding. And he's asking God, please, God, just kill me. I can't take any more. 
He says, Lord, I'm the only one left. You have nobody else. And God says, Elijah, I still got 700 men you don't know about that have not bowed the knee to Baal. You know why? Because God always has a remnant. He always has. And this is where Paul's getting at here. He's saying, he's saying to these Jews who are claiming that because they have rejected Christ, that the word of God must have failed. And Paul says, Maybe you haven't received him, but don't you think that I'm the only one? He said, God has a remnant, always has that remnant. And so there on Mount Carmel, Elijah said, God, no one left but me. But the Lord assured him that that was not true. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like, God, I must be the only one in my family that really believes by the way, you realize, well, I didn't think it was that funny, but okay. <laughs> well, if you knew her family too, you know what she's saying. You know, I, I, you know, one thing I think about Elijah standing there and saying, God, I'm the only one. You know, that was kind of arrogant on his part. And, and God says, you don't see everything. But have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like, you know, in the midst of, of, of wherever you are, Lord, am I the only one that truly believes? Am I the only one that understands? And, and you know, I think there are times that, that as believers, we may find ourselves in a, in, a, in a place or in a position where we feel that way, and, and we feel so all alone. That's how Elijah felt. He was alone. He felt, God, I can't do this by myself. And God says, Elijah, cheer up. You're not alone. You're not the only one. And, and, and we have to understand that too. Uh, so, you know, what was true in Elijah's day was also true in Paul's day. That even though a vast majority of Jews had rejected Christ, he still had a remnant. He still had a remnant. But it is only by God's grace that they believed. By the way... Did you know that it is only by God's grace that you believe? You see, when we talk about being predestined to eternal life, being predestined to uh, be conformed to the image of Christ, when I stand up here and say, I'm one of the chosen, I have to be careful how I say that. I can stand up here and I can say to you, hey, I'm one, of the, I'm one of God's favored people. Or I can see like the Apostle Paul and say, I'm the chief of sinners. I have no idea why I'm saved. It is only by the grace of God that we are saved. And, and you know, I remember I was pastoring a church one time and we were having a, a Wednesday evening Bible study. And there was a, there was a man walked in the door. Clearly drunk as a skunk. And he, he stumbled in and he, he just sat down. And I said, okay, if he's just going to sit down, I'm not going to bother him. Well, he didn't just sit down. He, everything, you know, he began to slurring his words, you know, and contradicting everything we were saying. I don't believe in God and all this and that. And I mean, just going on and on and on till finally two of the men had to, you know, take him out. You know, he was using foul language and all that. So <clears throat> anyway, 
I heard two women talking afterwards, and one of them said, can you believe he had the nerve to come in here like that? And I understand where she was coming from. And she said, it's just so sad people let their lives get like that. And I will never forget the other lady. She looked at her and she said, there, but for the grace of God, go I. And she said, well, what do you mean? She said, it's only the grace of God that you're not in the same position he is. And all of us must feel that. And, and, and this is what Paul's saying. To, he's saying, look, don't think that I'm somebody special. He said, it is only by the grace of God. Grace ceases. There in verse 6, he says that grace ceases to be grace when it's mixed with works. And so here's, here's you know, Paul through 9, 10, and 11. He's still talking about the same thing here. The Jewish people seeking to obtain their salvation by works. But don't we do exactly the same thing? Tell me that you have never went to God and said, Lord, I hope you still love me after what I did. Lord, I hope you can forgive this one because this is a big one. And God's up there saying, really? Do you not understand that I love you in Christ? I have forgiven you in Christ, not based on your performance. By the way, if you have never thanked God for that fact, you should. <laughs> I would not trust the best five seconds of my life to get me into heaven. Because it won't. So Paul, th th these verses are about the remnant and, and it should motivate all of us to be faithful to God. Because you see, uh, like I said, we may at times at work or at school or among lost people feel that we are the only true believers. But God is at work in the world around us forming a people for himself by his grace and for his glory. Be faithful. Even when you feel like you're all alone. And let me tell you something. If we strive to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, if we strive to be conformed to his image the way that God is doing. I want to tell you something, folks. You will find yourself at some point alone. You know why? Because he did. You will find those that love you, that you thought loved you the most, that were there for you the most, will turn their backs on you. You know why? Because they did him. You will find yourself accused of doing evil when you were actually doing good. You know why? Because it's what they did to him. You know, it's interesting. We all want to be servants. We just don't want to be treated like one. And so Paul, Paul is encouraging them. He's saying, look, we need to be faithful even though we may feel like we're all alone. We're all called to be different. We're all called to be set apart. I think one of the, the, the main issues in, our, in the modern church, especially in America today, is this right here. We are not influencing the world. The world is influencing us. Worldliness has gotten into the church. We, we, want, we want music that, that makes us feel good. We want preaching that makes me feel good. 
you know what, preacher, tell me how much God loves me and I can die and go to heaven. And, you know, don't don't tell me about I need to repent of my sin. Don't tell me that the wrath of God abides on me if I'm lost. We need to be faithful. We, we are called to be different. We are called to be set apart. And this is far more important than being relevant. It's far more important than being popular. It's far more important than being successful. Live for God's glory above all things. Paul's example of Elijah is, is the picture of that. God was basically saying, Elijah... What's wrong with you? Do you not realize what just happened? By the way, did you know that when you have those moments of your mountaintop victories for God, you will also have immediately after your valleys. Where you say, what happened? What happened? Wouldn't you love to stay on that mountain? Well, you know, someday you will. But not here and not in this body. And so uh, Elijah, Paul says, look, I know what it looks like. It looks like God has completely rejected his nation. You know, uh, I have some family that are Jehovah's Witnesses. And part of their thing is that God has turned his back on Israel because they crucified Christ. You realize how unbiblical that is? Well, look who it's coming from, but we need to live for God's glory above all else. And Paul, he gives a recap in verses 7 through 10 of Israel's failures. And, and he asks what the remnant idea has to say about Israel as a whole. And, and you know, back in chapter 9, verses 30 and 32, you know, Paul says, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness laid hold of it? Of righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. And he says, why? Because Israel did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. And this is what Paul is trying to get across to his Jewish readers. He's saying, look, you keep telling me, Paul, this can't be right. Paul, look at us. If this was true, we'd all be saved. But their thinking is the reason we would be saved is, number one, because we're Jewish. That's what the Pharisees said to Jesus. And he says, don't you know that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these rocks? He said, so, so you were born a Jew, so what? Well, Paul's already told us that just because they are descendants of Abraham doesn't mean they're Israel. A true Israelite is one who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, you know what? He says, the reason that this has happened, he says, because you keep trying to keep the law. You keep trying to come to Christ your own way. You keep trying to come to Christ any way other than the one way he has prescribed. Listen, Paul's message to the Jews that he's talking to are the same message he has for us today. How are you trying to approach God? Jesus said, I am the way I am the truth and I am the life and no one can come to the father but through me Jesus said broad is the road that leads to destruction narrow is the way that leads to eternal life 
You know why that road is narrow, and you know why that road continues to get narrower and narrower as you go? Because as you travel down that narrow road, you have to cast off anything. Anything you're trying to carry, anything you're trying to use, till you are down to the bare nothing. And then Jesus says, there's mine right there. Because he's looking to nothing but Christ. And, and Paul is telling these Israelites, he's saying, look, uh, the, where the majority of Israel wrongly pursued a works-based righteousness. But however, the elect within Israel obtained righteousness because they simply trusted Christ. You and I, we can learn so much from this because we, we must get away from that performance-based salvation. But not just a performance-based salvation, but a performance-based Christian life. Of understanding that, you know, in, 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 I think it's in the book of uh, Colossians, Paul says, As you have received Christ, so walk in Him. Well, how did you receive Him? By faith. So how are we to walk in Him? By faith. Did you know that the same faith that saves us is the same faith that sustains us. The same grace that saved us is the same grace. You know, God did not take, I did not come to Christ and say, okay, here I am. I have nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. And God says, you have faith, you have grace, you say, you're saved, you're mine. Now, go work for it. He doesn't say that, but we live like he did. And Paul is saying this to these Jews. He's saying, look, you, you keep trying to obtain something in a, what, that, you, that you need, but you're trying to get it the wrong way. You're trying to get it by your works. And Paul says that those who have not believed are hardened. You know, we talked about this and about Pharaoh when God hardened his heart. Listen, the hardening of God is a judicial act on, behalf, on the, the part of God. Is God uh, doing what is already there? The majority of Jews to this day persist in this kind of unbelief. And Paul's going to tell us later that God has blinded them. You know, Jesus, when, when he was talking about the, 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 the last days and all this and and he was talking about the coming Antichrist. And he said, here's the thing. He said, I have come in my father's name. And you have rejected me. But if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And he says that he will make them believe the lie. Now that's, not, that's interesting. That, that they have so rejected him that he's gonna, they get to a point where God says, you know what? I'm not even going to let you believe. I'm not going to let you see. You know, and if you look down here in verse 11, chapter 11, where he says in verse 9, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened and see not and bend their backs forever. In other words, God, uh, David says, you know what? God's going to show them the truth and they're going to reject it to the point that he's going to say, I'm not even going to let you see it anymore. He said, I'm going to let you keep working, bending your backs, trying to earn my favor. Of which you will never do. It's a judicial act 
of God himself. And we need to recognize uh, Paul's emphasis here on grace. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But we must understand this is not the default of our heart. We want to earn it. Why? Why are we so... Why were, the, why were the, the, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, why were they so intent on saying, look, God, you must save me because look at all these good I've done. Look at all these commandments that I have. Why are, why are we so reluctant to just throw it all aside, to just cast it all aside and say, God, here I am. Please save me. You remember when Jesus told the parable about the, the publican and the the, the Sinner that went up on the mountain to pray. And the Pharisee stood there and he said, or the Pharisee and the publican, that's what I meant to say. The Pharisee says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a swindler. I'm not a con man. I go to church every Sunday. I read my Bible. I pray. Lord, thank you that I'm like that and not like other people. Thank you that I'm not like that publican over there. And you know, when Jesus told that parable, you know, a publican was, was a tax collector, but he was employed by the Romans and he was a Jewish man, which that's strike number one. And then strike number two is the Romans gave them the authority and says, you know, well, if, if they owe $20 and you want to take 30 and keep 10 for yourself, go ahead. So they did. So they were basically taking advantage of their own people. And Jesus said that this Pharisee stands there and says, oh God, aren't you glad that you have a man like me? And the, the publican stands over there and he says, he won't even look up. He just smote his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. He didn't say a sinner. He said the sinner. He was echoing the words that the apostle Paul would say when he says uh, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I am the foremost. Do you see yourself that way? Do you ever think about God? Uh, you know, is there anybody that sins like I do? <laughs> Lord. And, and so Paul is saying here, he's saying, look, it's all about grace. And he's trying to make his Jewish believers understand that the default understanding of our heart is not by grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone. I want to do something. I have to do something. By the way, we do do something. Okay? Now, you may have never heard this, so you might want to write it down. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Oh, you have heard that before. People will try anything to get rid of their guilt. To deal with the unsettled conscience, therapy, medicine, drugs, alcohol, or they'll adopt a works-based religion. This is what Paul is getting at the Jewish people here. He's saying, look, you will do anything to get rid of the guilt and the shame of your sin except the one thing that will do it. But aren't we the same way? We fall into a sin, we give in to temptation, and rather than running to God and falling on our face and saying, Oh God, have mercy on me, the sinner. 
We say, you know, this has become a habit in my life. Maybe I need therapy. This seems to be something that I really enjoy in my life, and it's sinful. But since I enjoy it, it must be all right. We make every excuse in the world. And we will do everything we can to appease God except the one thing that will appease God. Which is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where Paul is getting to them. Uh, because you cannot drink your guilt away. You cannot medicate your guilt away. No amount of education. No matter of, of, of religious rituals. We are saved by undiluted grace. Grace. <clears throat> you know what? Um, my mind, the, the word, I think it's called an acrostic, where you take the letters of a word, you know, and put them in the mail. Do you know what grace stands for? God's riches at Christ's expense. That's basically what it is. God's riches at Christ's expense. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus has given us undiluted grace. God's unmerited favor to those who will repent and place their faith in Christ. And you and I who are Christians today, we should stand in grateful awe that God has extended grace to us. Because you know what we deserve? We deserve hell. We, don't, we not only deserve hell, we deserve the darkest corner of hell there is. For the smallest of sin. Because the smallest of sin is an outright rebellion against the holy God. And Paul, he's pleading with his Jewish believers here, with his with Jewish kinsmen here, not believers, but Jewish kinsmen. And he's saying, look, stop trying to earn what God has freely given. And God says, until you let me freely give it, I'm not giving it. You can give me all you want. You can give me all the money, all the time, everything. He said, you can work. He said, you can obey all these things. He says, but until you come by faith in Christ alone, receiving my grace alone, in faith alone, you get nothing. Now, we've talked about this before. Do you know why it's so important that it be by grace alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Because it results in the glory of God alone. And you and I will never stand in heaven and say, oh, I'm so glad I made it. I'm so glad I did what I did. I'm so glad that I prayed a prayer. I'm so glad I got baptized. So glad I joined the church. Because if I hadn't done all that, I wouldn't be here. I'm so glad that I decided to receive Christ. We're not going to say that. You know, as I've said before, folks, when you walk through the gates of heaven and Christ himself stands there with his arms open, you're not going to run up and hug him. You're going to fall on your face. Say thank you. Thank you, Lord. And you know, this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, this is where we remember why we will fall on His face. 
This is where we remember why we are saved by grace alone. Jesus sat down with his disciples to eat the Passover, and he said, you know, he said, I'm not going to eat this again until I drink it with you in my kingdom. Now, I love that verse, because you know what it tells me? That there's coming a day when what we do on the first Sunday of every month, we're going to sit down with Jesus himself and do. But he says, do this in remembrance of me. I want us to all take just a moment. You know, the Apostle Paul in, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, when he talks about the Lord's Supper, he says, look, he said, let, let a man examine himself. Don't come here in an unworthy manner. Do you have any hidden sin that you refuse to repent of? Then it's a dangerous thing to do this right here. Do you have a heart of unforgiveness or bitterness towards someone else, especially another believer? Then it's a very dangerous thing to do this. We need to make sure our hands are clean and our hearts are pure. So let's take just a moment and bow your heads and make sure that you've repented of your sin. That you and God are in a good place and that you've trusted trusted solely in the Lord Jesus Christ take just a moment